Steve Nerlick, Cheap Astronomy. Well, folks, it's time for another Astronomy Without a Telescope, because once again, things are getting a bit tough at work. And this one's entitled, Brown Dwarves are Magnetic Too. I feel a certain empathy for brown dwarfs. The first confirmed finding of one was only 15 years ago, and they remain frequently overlooked in most significant astronomical surveys. I mean, okay, they can only (laughs) burn deuterium, but that's something, isn't it? It has been suggested that a clever way of finding more brown dwarfs is in the radio spectrum. A brown dwarf with a strong magnetic field and a modicum of stellar wind should produce an electron-cyclotron maser. Roughly speaking, something you can always depend upon from this writer, electrons caught in a magnetic field are spun energetically into a tight circle, stimulating the emission of microwaves in a particular plane from the star's polar regions. So you get a maser, essentially the microwave version of a laser that would be visible on Earth if we are in the line of sight of it, meaning the star's poles need to be lined up towards Earth. While this maser effect can probably be weakly generated by isolated brown dwarfs, it's more likely we will detect one in binary association with a less mass-challenged star that is capable of generating a more vigorous stellar wind to interact with a brown dwarf's magnetic field. This maser effect is also proposed to offer a clever way of finding exoplanets. An exoplanet with a very powerful magnetic field could actually outshine, in the radio spectrum, its host star that does have a vigorous stellar wind. Anyway... So far, searches for confirmed radio emissions from brown dwarfs or orbiting exoplanets around other stars have been unsuccessful, but this may become achievable in the near future with the steadily growing resolution of the European Low Frequency Array, or LOFAR, which will be the best such instrument around until the Square Kilometre Array, or SCAR, is built and SCAR probably won't be seeing its first light before at least 2017. Christensen and others, there's a reference to one of their papers down the bottom, which is a magnetic field evolution scenario for brown dwarfs and giant planets. Anyhow, Christensen and others estimate that radio light from known exoplanets within 65 light years will emit at wavelengths that can make it through Earth's ionosphere. So, with the right ground-based equipment, that is, a completed LOFAR or a SCAR, we should be able to start spotting brown dwarfs and exoplanets aplenty. But even if we can't see brown dwarfs and exoplanets in radio yet, we can start developing profiles of likely candidates. Christensen and team have derived a magnetic scaling relationship for small-scale celestial objects, which delivers predictions that fit well with observations of solar system planets and low-mass main-sequence stars 
in the K&M spectral classes. K&M stars are at the lower range of the spectral classes, and hence are all really small red dwarf stars. But these are stars we can still visualise, whereas the brown dwarfs are even further down that scale. Using the Christensen model, it's thought that brown dwarfs, of about 70 Jupiter masses, may have magnetic fields in the order of several kilogauss in their first 100 million years of life as they burn deuterium and spin fast. However, as they age, their magnetic field is likely to weaken as deuterium burning and spin rate declines. Brown dwarfs that do have declining deuterium burning, due to their age or smaller starting mass, may have magnetic fields similar to giant exoplanets, anywhere from 100 Gauss up to 1 kilo Gauss. Mind you, that's just for young exoplanets. The magnetic fields of exoplanets also evolve over time, such that their magnetic field strength may decrease by a factor of 10 over 10 billion years. So, that was the article. Then there were a number of comments from readers. And a good question about how common brown dwarfs might be, to which the answer was a speculation, I guess, that because we know there are many more red dwarfs than brightest stars, it seems it would fit that pattern if there are even more brown dwarfs than there are red dwarfs. So it could be the case that brown dwarfs are the most common stars, if you're comfortable calling them stars. This article is about trying to break that ground to find some technology that we can use to identify these very, very dim stars. So, just to recap for the podcast, the whole idea is that brown dwarfs are very dim, they don't radiate a lot of visible light, they do radiate, say, from infrared down to radio wavelength, but being low-energy radiation... It's hard to pick that up, and it's quite hard to pick that up in a universe full of radio bright objects like stars and quasars, just for example. So really the idea here is to not depend upon the star's radiation capacity, but look for side effects of its existence, notably that if it has a strong magnetic field, you get that funny Mazar effect when electrons from a star's stellar wind move through that rotating magnetic field and get turned into a sort of microwave laser. This won't help you identify every brown dwarf in the universe because you need the star's poles pointed at Earth to pick up the maser. And we know that the magnetic field of a brown dwarf or an exoplanet will decline with age so that the polar masers of their youth will fade away. But nonetheless, we will be able to pick up a representative sample of all the brown dwarfs out there, helping us to then speculate how many there really might be. So what you have here is a nifty scientific paper putting forward a theory about what next-generation low-frequency and radio telescopes will be capable of well before they've even been built. Thanks for listening. Oh, and hey... Never one for seeing things on opening night, I just got around to seeing Hubble 3D on IMAX. And it's pretty good. Sort of like a podcast, but with visuals and, you know, 3D. Okay, see you next week.
Steve Nerlick, Cheap Astronomy.